Lord Jesus, You are the light that has entered the world. You are the light that enlightens the nations. May Your light illuminate our hearts and our minds that we may see and know Your truth. In Your name we pray. Amen. In 2008, a relatively unknown movie producer and an even lesser known movie director made cinematic history. In that year, John, or Kevin Feige and John Favreau launched what would emerge as the most financially successful movie franchise in human history with Marvel's cinematic universe. This, this comic book-based powerhouse went on to rake in a staggering $30 billion, billion dollars in ticket sales alone. And that doesn't account for merchandise and all the toys and other stuff. $30 billion. Driven by the powerhouse giants like Iron Man and Captain America and the Avengers, crowds flocked with cash in hand to see their favorite superheroes leap off of the pages and on to the silver screen, and it made Marvel a fortune in the process. Well, wanting to get in on the action, Warner Brothers decided to launch their own franchise not too long after, based on their DC comic book superheroes. Guys like Superman and Batman and the Justice League. And they were willing to bet big. They sank $5 billion into this project before anything even hit the screen. But for them, this was really no risk because they had surefire hits on their hands. After all, their characters, Batman and Superman, are well-known, beloved characters, unlike those other guys, Thor and Ant-Man. I mean, who's ever heard of Ant-Man? They not only envisioned kids going to the movies to see these things, they thought the parents and the grandparents would be flocking with them, all with that, those nostalgic memories of guys like Christopher Reeves playing Bat or Superman and Michael Keaton playing Batman. They were ready to strike gold. Unfortunately, history has shown us that that nostalgia has not paid off. As of today, Warner Brothers has only pulled in $6 billion, $6 billion in ticket sales. Now, I'm not great with math, but when you take that $5 billion initial investment and you subtract that from the $6 billion they've made, that leaves you with $1 billion left. Now, a billion dollars is not small pocket change, okay? But when you compare that with the $30 billion that Marvel made, it's really nothing in comparison. Now, many people have wondered what exactly happened, why this happened. Was it poor acting? Was it lackluster production? No, not really. Now, we might not ever know the truth of what went wrong with Warner Brothers, but many critics do agree there is one source to their problem. And their problem lies with the very thing that they thought would be their asset, the familiarity of the stories. You see, Warner Brothers followed Marvel's pattern of spending a lot of time on origin stories, but Marvel had unknown characters. Warner Brothers had characters to stories we are all familiar with, and that is where the problem lies. Because instead of wowing audiences with these amazing movies, they ended up putting most of us to sleep. Warner Brothers had to learn the hard way, the old proverbial saying, Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. 
I mention this to you today because I have the task, the responsibility of preaching probably the most well-known of origin stories in human history. The narrative of Jesus' birth. Think about it. Everybody knows about the birth of Jesus. It is the most celebrated birthday in the world. And who exactly is number two? Nobody knows. But everybody knows Jesus' birth. Everybody knows this story. And so the real challenge for us can be that familiarity breeds contempt. Now, why am I saying that? Well, maybe the preacher is looking for a little mercy this morning. And it is good to give the, the preacher a little mercy from time to time. But the reality is, despite familiarity of Jesus' birth story, in our heart of hearts, we all know that this story holds a depth and a richness that should never grow old. In our souls, we know we should never allow this story to become indifferent to us. We should never become apathetic towards this story. We want to hold on to it for what it truly is. The biblical Middle Eastern scholar, a guy by the name of Ken Bailey, describes the nativity story as a diamond ring. And he explains that when we first hear this incredible story, it's like putting on a brand new diamond ring. It's sparkly and amazing. And when we put it on, we admire it. We're proud of it. But with the passing of time, what happens? That ring begins to fade, right? Now, does that make the ring any less valuable? No, not at all. What it means is that we simply need to take the ring into the jeweler to be cleaned and polished so that its original brilliance can shine again and we can appreciate its value. Well, the same is true with the nativity story. The more familiar we become with it, the more it needs to be polished and cleaned so that its brilliance can shine forth and we can appreciate its value. And the truth of the matter is, as we dig deep into this story, we will see its brilliance and its value. We'll find that there are many, many rich layers to the nativity story. I like to think of the nativity story kind of like one of these Russian nesting dolls. You all know these Russian nesting dolls? I like this one. It literally has the pictures of the nativity on it. And I think of the nativity story like a Russian nesting doll because the deeper we go, we'll discover that each layer has profound meaning and significance. And the deeper we go, the more we'll discover its spiritual and existential implications. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack this story, this very familiar story, and polish our diamond because it is rich. So this morning... We're not going to look at the whole narrative story. Don't worry. We're, we're going to focus on just the end that we have here in Matthew 2, focusing just on the, the story, the portion of the Magi's visit. Now, every year when we come to the end of the Christmas season and we start the new Epiphany season, we always do so by reading this portion of the narrative. And, and rightly so, because if we think about it, if Christmas time is to be the time when we celebrate the incarnation, Jesus' arrival to this world. And the epiphany is the time when we, we learn what the implications of that arrival mean for us. And when we learn about who Jesus is, then this story of the Magi bridges these two seasons beautifully. Because it's a story that begins at the G beginning of Jesus' life, and it starts to reveal who Jesus is. But this is more than just a story that reveals Jesus' identity. It also begins to uncover the challenging aspects 
of Jesus' arrival. You see, as we unpack the layers of the nativity, while this story often on the surface brings a lot of joy and comfort to many of us, as we go deeper, what we'll discover, it also has the power to arouse the darker aspects of human nature. As we look at this story, it has the ability to incite sin and violence. This is the tough reality of Jesus entering into our world, that there is a hard side to the gospel. And that's what I want to unpack this morning, the tough sides of the nativity story. Now, some of you might be thinking, what are you talking about, Father Chase? Hang in with me there, okay? We're going to go somewhere with this, all right? Because in this last portion of the nativity nativity story, what we'll see is that there are three tough aspects of Jesus' arrival that we must accept. As hard as it may be, accept it, we must. Because it's in accepting them that in the end we'll find something beautiful and profound. So what are the tough sides of the gospel? Well, the first hard aspect to accept is that the good news of Jesus has enemies. The gospel has enemies. Let's look at King Herod here for a moment, one of the first enemies of the gospel. Now, here's a guy who on the surface seems interested in the coming of the Messiah. When the the Magi come and speak with him, he's got the religious experts all around him talking about Scripture and the law. But we quickly discover it's all a front. Because soon as, as soon as these magi leave, what does Herod start to do? He starts plotting the unimaginable, and he issues orders to have the lives of innocent baby boys taken. Try to imagine that scene for a moment. Imagine soldiers going door to door, sword in hand. Mothers in fear, hiding their children, whispering desperately for silence as soldiers pass by. All because of what? Jesus has come into our world. Part of the tough side of the nativity is that the good news of Jesus has enemies. Now, before we put our noses up in the air and we sit all high and mighty on our horses and we think, well, that's those people out there in the world. We are not the enemies. Let's remember what Paul tells us in Romans. That at one point, all of us in this room were enemies of the gospel. All of us at some point were Herods. And the truth of the matter is, there are still many times when we can still act like Herods. When Jesus challenges our authority or our position or our way of life. It's hard to imagine that the arrival of Jesus can be anything other than the greatest source of our comfort and hope. But what Matthew 2 shows us is that the truth is is that the arrival of Jesus also acts like a mirror, a mirror that reflects the depths of our fears and our insecurities and our darkest inclinations. It's hard to accept it, but accept it we must, because it's crucial to understanding the entire story. The gospel has enemies. That's the first difficult aspect to swallow. The second, even more difficult aspect or side to the gospel is that simply announcing the good news will create animosity towards us. Simply speaking about Jesus' arrival in this world will create hostility towards us. Now, this shouldn't surprise us too much 
Because we live in a world, in a time, in a place where, where the name of Jesus is increasingly more and more what? Considered what? Hate speech. Simply talking about Jesus will create animosity. Shifting away from Herod, let's look now at the wise men for a minute. Now, when these guys who traveled from Persia reached Jerusalem, were they revolutionaries? No, not at all. What did they do? They went to the palace, they spoke to Herod, and they said, where is the child? Where is this one who is to be the new king? We've come to pay him homage and to worship him. That's all they did. They didn't come into Jerusalem painting posters that, says, that said, Jesus is born, viva la revolution. They didn't come looking to overthrow the government. All they asked was, where is the child? Where is the one who is the king? Where can we worship him? But that was enough. That was enough to incite hostility. That simple act of faith was enough to stir up a whole lot of trouble. It's a hard pill to swallow, but the truth is simply announcing the good news of the gospel will create enemies for us. When I was in seminary, we had a missionary from China come speak to us during one of our dean's hours. Now, I can't remember this missionary's name, but I will never forget the story that she shared with us. She told the story of another missionary in central China, a man who was an agricultural missionary. What's an agricultural missionary? Well, it's a person who studies agriculture and goes over into the deep parts of China and shares the latest and greatest technology and innovations and practices on agriculture with the Chinese people. And so he goes over and he's traveling village to village and he's sharing all of this wonderful news, helping people to grow better vegetables so they can feed their children and their villages. But as he's doing this, he's also starting to share a story with them the story of Jesus, and the people start to listen. But when that happens, that's when he gets in trouble because the government had him arrested. Why? Because they told this man he was dangerous. Now, this was a guy who wouldn't harm a fly, but the Chinese government felt that he was dangerous. And you know something? He was dangerous. Because even though this man wouldn't harm a fly, he carried with him a dangerous message. A message that could change the nation. A message that had the power to transform the hearts of the people. A message that had the ability to reveal to them who they truly were and how much God truly values them. And that was a dangerous message to a government that vehemently opposed such a story. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that this world faces a crisis because light has entered into the world, and yet the people of this world love darkness more. He goes on to explain that even mentioning this light will provoke enmity for us. And yet here's the real hard part for us, friends. When opposition arises and people declare us to be, our, to be enemies because of our story, we are not called to fight fire with fire. We are not to declare those who call us enemies our enemies, but we're to see them as Jesus sees them, as the mission, as the people for whom and to whom we are called to share that God's good news has entered into our world. So the first hard part of the gospel to accept is that the gospel has enemies. But even harder than that will be that we need to accept that merely mentioning or announcing the good news will arouse 
personal animosity towards us. Third, and I think hardest for us to accept, will be that the gospel will disrupt our lives. The gospel will disrupt our lives. You see, the story of Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his entire message, it wasn't meant to simply fit neatly into our everyday lives or to align with what society expects. There's this pervasive lie in Western Christianity that says that, that when we follow the gospel, Jesus is going to come into our lives, that he's going to clean everything up and make our lives better. As if Jesus is just icing on the cake. But that is not what is revealed in the nativity story. What's revealed is that following him will challenge our lives. You see, the nativity story isn't just some story that makes us feel good. It calls us to action. It's a story that calls us to step out of what is comfortable or what is the status quo. It's a challenge to live out a kind of love that is so deep, so unconditional, so profound that it almost doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. And at times, it's going to agitate the people of this world. It's a call to offer Jesus the very, very best portions of our lives, even when there are Herods out there trying to harm us. You see, the truth is, embracing Jesus, really embracing him, will be disruptive for us. It means it will turn our worlds upside down because it means acknowledging that we are no longer the center of our universes. It means that we need to accept that our plans, our desires, our dreams may need to be laid aside to follow something and someone greater than ourselves. And this is where the story of the Magi and Herod intersect. Because you see, on one hand, there is the Magi's. And these guys are seekers. They're searchers for the truth. And they're willing to search out this truth no matter what challenge lay ahead of them, no matter what cost they must pay. They follow that star, not knowing exactly where it would lead, only that it promised them something extraordinary at the end. And they were willing to follow that because they knew that there was someone greater at the end of that star. Herod, on the other hand, represents the resistance to that surrender. In him, we see the struggle of the human heart against Jesus. Herod wanted to maintain control. He wanted to hold on to his power. And so the, the, the arrival of this new king threatened everything that he held dear. And so his response was one of fear and violence. Herod was not willing to accept the hard side of the gospel. So as I stand here today, I have to ask myself, as I ask all of you as well, are we willing to accept the hard truths of the gospel? That we are called to embrace this story, to continually stand firm in the truth of this story, to sacrifice everything for this story, no matter how much it disrupts our lives. The arrival of Jesus must, means that we must be willing to go on a journey for him and with him, to seek him out no matter what we face. These are the hard sides of the gospel. The hard sides of the gospel show us that the gospel has enemies. The hard sides of the gospel show us that merely talking about the gospel in our lives will create hostility in our own lives because people love the darkness. And the hard side of the gospel says our lives will be disrupted when we follow that story with all of our hearts. That is the hardest truth of the gospel. But here's the beautiful part. In 
our surrender, in our letting go, that is where we find our truest freedom. That is where we find our truest purpose and our greatest source of joy. The Magi, when they finally found Jesus and laid before him all of their gifts, in that moment of worship, in that act of surrender, they found what they were truly looking for. Actually, they found something even greater than what they were looking for. Last night, Mother Bree shared with us an epiphany devotion where she talked about, um, who was the poet? Um, T.S. Eliot, thank you, how could I forget that? T.S. Eliot, and in this poem, he talks about how the Magi, when they found Jesus, they were forever changed and could never go back to their former ways of life. They found something more beautiful and profound than they expected. And so as we reflect on this story, and we ponder the journey of the Magi and the resistance of Herod, let's ask ourselves, where do we stand this morning? Are we willing to embark on this journey of faith, on this journey of surrender and worship? Are we willing to let Jesus be the king of our lives, not just in word, but also in deed? Because if we are, there will be a hard side. There will be a hard side to that story. But when we embrace those hard parts, that's when we'll find our king. And in him, we find everything that we could need and so much more. May this journey be our journey. May this story be part of our story as we live out the truth of the gospel each and every day. Amen.